Chapter Three of *The Skylark of Valeron* by E. E. Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. Now we'll get ready to take that battleship. Duquesne turned to his aide as the Violet disappeared from their sight. Your suggestion that one of the crew of this ship could have gone space crazy was sound, and I have planned our approach to the mothership on that basis. We must wear fetachrone spacesuits for three reasons. First, because it is the only possible way to make us look even remotely like them, and we shall have to stand a casual inspection. Second, because it is general orders that all fenachrone soldiers must wear suits while at their post in space. Third, because we shall have lost most of our air. You can wear one of their suits without any difficulty. The surplus circumference will not trouble you very much. I, on the contrary, cannot even get into one since they're almost a foot too short. I must have a suit on, though, before we board the battleship, so I shall wear my own with one of theirs over it, with the feet cut off so that I can get it on. Since I shall not be able to stand up or move around without giving everything away because of my length, I'll have to be unconscious and folded up so that my height will not be too apparent, and you will have to be the star performer during the first act. But this detailed instruction by word of mouth takes altogether too much time. Put on this headset, and I'll shoot you the whole scheme, together with whatever additional fenachrone knowledge you will need to put the act across. A brief exchange of thoughts and of ideas followed. Then every detail made clear. The two terrestrials donned the spacesuits of the very short but enormously wide and thick monstrosities in semi-human form who were so bigotedly working toward their day of universal conquest. Duquesne picked up in his doubly mailed hands a massive bar of metal. Ready at all? When I swing this, we cross the Rubicon. It's all right by me. All or nothing. Shoot the works. Duquesne swung his mighty bludgeon aloft, and as it descended, the telemental recorder sprang into a shower of shattered tubes, flying coils, and broken insulation. The visiray apparatus went next, followed in swift succession by the superficial air controls, the map cases, and practically everything else that was breakable, until it was clear to even the most casual observer that a madman had in truth wrought his frenzied will throughout the room. One final swing wrecked the controls of the airlocks, and the atmosphere within the vessel began to whistle out into the vacuum of space through the broken bleeder tubes. All right, doll, do your stuff, Duquesne directed crisply, and threw himself headlong into a corner, falling into an inert, grotesque huddle. Loring, now impersonating the dead commanding officer of the scout ship, sat down at the manual sender, which had not been seriously damaged, and in true fenachrone fashion laid a beam to the mother ship. Scout ship K3296, Sub-Lieutenant Grenamar commanding, sending emergency distress message, he tapped out fluently. Am not using telemental recorder as required by regulations because nearly all instruments wrecked. Private 244C14 on watch suddenly seized with space insanity, smashed air valves, instruments, and controls. Opened lock and leaped out into space. 
I was awake and got into suit before my room lost pressure. My other man, 397B42, was unconscious when I reached him, but believe I got him into his suit soon enough so that his life can be saved by prompt aid. 244C14, of course dead, but I recovered his body, as per general orders, and am saving it so that brain lesions may be studied by College of Science. Repaired this manual sender and have ship under partial control. Am coming toward you, decelerating to stop in fifteen minutes. Suggest you handle this ship with beam when approach, as I have no fine controls. Signing off, K-3296. Super Dreadnought Z-12Q, acknowledging emergency distress message of scout ship K-296, came almost instant answer. We'll meet you and handle you as suggested. Signing off, Z-12Q. Rapidly the two ships of space drew together. The patrol boat, now stationary with respect to the planet, the huge battleship decelerating at maximum. Three enormous beams reached out, and, held at prow midsection and stern, the tiny flyer was drawn rapidly but carefully against the towering side of her mother ship. The double suction seals engaged and locked, the massive doors began to open. Now came the most crucial point of Duquesne's whole scheme. For that warship carried a complement of nearly a hundred men, and ten or a dozen of them, the lock commander, surgeons, and orderlies, certainly, and possibly a corps of mechanics as well, would be massed in the airlock room behind those slowly opening barriers. But in that scheme's very audacity lay its great strength, its almost complete assurance of success. For what Fenachrone, with the inborn superiority complex that was his heritage, would even dream that two members of any alien race would have the sheer brazen effrontery to dare to attack empty-handed a full-manned Class Z super-dreadnought, one of the most formidable structures that has ever lifted its stupendous mass into the ether. But Duquesne so dared. Direct action had always been his forte. Apparently impossible odds had never daunted him. He had always planned his coups carefully, then followed those plans coldly and ruthlessly to their logical and successful conclusions. Two men could do this job very nicely, and would so do it. Duquesne had chosen Loring with care. Therefore he lay at ease in his armor in front of the slowly opening portal, calmly certain that the iron nerves of his assistant would not weaken for even the instant necessary to disrupt his carefully laid plan. As soon as the doors had opened sufficiently to permit ingress, Loring went through them slowly, carrying the supposedly unconscious man with care. But once inside the opaque walls of the lock-room, that slowness became activity incarnate. Duquesne sprang instantly to his full height, and before the clustered officers could even perceive that anything was amiss, four sure hands had trained upon them the deadliest hand-weapons known to the superlative science of their own race. Since Duquesne was overlooking no opportunity of acquiring knowledge, the heads were spared. 
but as the four furious blasts of vibratory energy tore through those massive bodies, making of their every internal organ a mass of disorganized protoplasmic pulp, every phenochrone in the room fell lifeless to the floor before he could move a hand in self-defense. Dropping his weapons, Duquesne wrenched off his helmet, while Loring, with deft hands, bared the head of the senior officer of the group upon the floor. Headsets flashed out, were clamped into place, dials were set. The scientist shot power into the tubes, transferring to his own brain an entire section of the dead brain before him. His senses reeled under the shock, but he recovered quickly, and even as he threw off the phones, Loring slammed down over his head the helmet of the fenachrone. Duquesne was now commander of the airlocks, and the break in communications had been of such short duration that not the slightest suspicion had been aroused. He snapped out mental orders to the distant power room, the side of the vessel opened, and the scout ship was drawn within. "'All tight, sir,' he reported to the captain, and the Z-12Q began to retrace her path in space. Duquesne's first objective had been attained without untoward incident. The second objective, the control room, might present more difficulty, since its occupants would be scattered. However, to neutralize this difficulty, the earthly attackers could work with their bare hands, and thus with the weapons with which both were thoroughly familiar. Removing their gauntlets, the two men ran lightly toward that holy of Fenachrone holies, the control room. Its doors were guarded, but Duquesne had known that it would be, wherefore the guards went down before they could voice a challenge. The door crashed open, and four heavy, long-barreled automatic began to vomit forth a leaden storm of death. Those pistols were gripped in accustomed and steady hands. Those hands, in turn, were actuated by the ruthless brains of heartless, conscienceless, and merciless killers. His second and major objective gained, Duquesne proceeded at once to consolidate his position. Pausing only to learn from the brain of the dead captain the exact technique of procedure, he summoned into the sanctum, one at a time, every member of the gigantic vessel's crew. Man after man they came, in answer to the summons of their all-powerful captain, and man after man they died. "'Take the educator and get some of their surgeon's skill,' Duquesne directed curtly, after the last member of the crew had been accounted for. "'Take off the heads and put them where they'll keep. Throw the rest of the rubbish out. Never mind about this captain. I want to study him.' Then, while Loring busied himself at his grisly task, Duquesne sat at the captain's bench, read the captain's brains, and sent in to general headquarters the regular routine reports of the vessel. All cleaned up. Now what? Loring was as spick and span, as calmly unruffled as though he were reporting in one of the private rooms of the Perkins Café. Start back to the earth? Not yet. Even though Duquesne had captured his battleship, thereby performing the almost impossible, he was not yet content. There are a lot of things to learn here yet, and I think that we had better stay here as long as possible and learn them, provided we can do so without incurring any extra risks. As far as actual flight goes, two men can handle this ship as well as a hundred, since her machinery is all automatic. 
Therefore we can run away any time. We could not fight, however, as it takes about thirty men to handle her weapons. But fighting would do no good, anyway, because they could outnumber us a hundred to one in a few hours. All of which means that if we go out beyond the detector screens we will not be able to come back. We had better stay here so as to be able to take advantage of any favorable developments." He fell silent, frowningly concentrated upon some problem obscure to his companion. At last he went to the main control panel and busied himself with a device of photocells, coils, and kinobulbs, whereupon Loring set about preparing a long-delayed meal. "'It's all hot, chief. Come and get it,' the aide invited, when he saw that his superior's immediate task was done. "'What's the idea? Didn't they have enough controls there already?' "'The idea is, Dahl, not to take any unnecessary chances.' Ah, this goulash hits the spot. Duquesne ate appreciatively for a few minutes in silence, then went on. Three things may happen to interfere with the continuation of our search for knowledge. First, since we are now in command of a Fenachrone mothership, I have to report to headquarters on the Telemental Recorder, and they may catch me in a slip any minute, which will mean a massed attack. Second, the enemy may break through the Fenachrone defenses and precipitate a general engagement. Third, there is still the bare possibility of that cosmic explosion I told you about. In that connection, it is quite obvious that an atomic explosion wave of that type would be propagated with the velocity of light. Therefore, even though our ship could run away from it, since we have an acceleration of five times that velocity, Yet we could not see that such an explosion had occurred until the wave front reached us. Then, of course, it would be too late to do anything about it because what an atomic explosion wave would do to the dense material of this battleship would be simply nobody's business. We might get away if one of us had his hands actually on the controls and had his eyes and his brain right on the job, but that is altogether too much to expect of flesh and blood. No brain can be maintained at its highest pitch for any length of time. So what? Loring said laconically. If the chief was not worried about these things, the henchman would not be worried either. So I rigged up a detector that is both automatic and instantaneous. At the first touch of any unusual vibration, it will throw in the full space drive and will shoot us directly away from the point of the disturbance. Now we shall be absolutely safe no matter what happens. We are safe from any possible attack. Neither the Fenachrone nor our common enemy, whoever they are, can harm us. We are safe even from the atomic explosion of the entire planet. We shall stay here until we get everything that we want. Then we shall go back to the green system. We shall find Seton. His entire being grew grim and implacable. His voice became harder and colder even than its hard and cold want. We shall blow him clear out of the ether. The world, yes, whatever I want of the galaxy, shall be mine. End of chapter 3